gates open, off and stylish sensory state at the gate. There's Bo Rogue being set alight immediately by Cyril Small and racing to the lead. But Bo Rogue won't give up, he's still in front. Groucho's grabbing him now. Groucho coming at Bo Rogue, don't play, getting a rails run. Bo Rogue in front, he's got a heart as big as himself. He'll win, Bo Rogue! Bo Rogue has cracked it at last. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. The metropolitan phase of the Spring Carnival is over for another year and now the action swings to the major provincial tracks at Newcastle and Kembla Grange. Saturday, November the 13th, sees the third running of The Hunter, an aptly named 1300 metre race for three-year-olds and upwards worth $1 million. The first two editions of The Hunter have been won by mares. In 2019, Godolphin Savatiano blitzed the opposition and last year it was Sweet Deal winning easily for trainer John Thompson. On Saturday the 20th of November, all roads will lead to the big track on the coast when another aptly named race will be run. This time, it's the gong, also worth one million to be run over the testing Kembla Mile. The inaugural running went to Mr Seawolf for Chris Waller and James McDonald, while last year it was won by Arcademus for Team Hawks and Jay Ford. The gong and the hunter are enhanced by the fact that they're conducted on two of the fairest provincial tracks in Australia. Newcastle and Kembla Grange boast top racing surfaces, spacious stretches and home straights that give the backmarkers a chance to get into the race. November the 13th, north for the Hunter, November the 20th, down the coast for the Gong as the Spring Carnival rolls on. From a low-key beginning in the early 1970s, racehorse syndication has become a very significant part of the booming Australian racing industry. Syndicated horses are often in the winner's circle at the elite level. Horses like Private Eye recently in the Epsom, She Will Rain in the Golden Slipper, Red Zell in a couple of Everests, and a few years ago, Sebring won a Golden Slipper. The late Harry Lawton pioneered racehorse syndication in this country, specialising in ownership groups of six people. The concept took a dramatic turn a couple of years later when two young blokes with a common interest in racing launched a new company designed to form much larger syndicates. Alan Ganey and Terry Mulhall created Hyperion Thoroughbreds in 1974. The first horse they syndicated cost $700 at a Dubbo sale and under the name of Prince Clarendon, he went on to win eight races. By the time the company's 10th anniversary came along in 1984, 150 winners, syndicated by Hyperion, had won 550 races between them, complemented by 1,000 placings and around $2 million in prize money. A lot of money 37 years ago. A further 100 winners carried the Hyperion colours from 84 to 1990 when the company became a victim of the recession described by the then Treasurer Paul Keating as the recession we had to have. For the past 14 years, Alan Ganey has run his own company, Pinnacle Sports Management, specialising in the identification of burgeoning rugby league talent and the management of some very high-profile players 
including the brilliant Greg Inglis. In an era when racehorse syndication is putting over 200 horses a year into New South Wales stables, it's a pleasure to welcome one of the trailblazers, Alan Ganey. Lovely to have you on the podcast, Alan. Yes, mate, it has been a long time. I hope my memory goes back as far as yours and that we can uh, recap on some uh, exciting days in the early stages and, you know, the few problems we did have in with corporate-wise and getting syndicate, syndicates registered and approved. And, you know, it all worked out and I think uh, it's a great indictment of the way the business is going these days is you know it's syndication is just taking off it's still going still mm. going you've switched from equine athletes to the human kind but you've never lost your passion for racing and you never will no no follow it very closely haven't got any direct involvement we follow the breeding sort of every week and Watch the races when when the football's not on. Football comes priority at this stage, rugby league. But um, you know, still still got an avid interest in the thoroughbred for sure. Doesn't you, get out of your blood. Oh no, you've managed some great players since launching Pinnacle, but I think Greg Inglis remains at the top of your list, doesn't he? He made a comeback recently, uh, Alan, for the Warrington Club in England, but he only played two or three games. Yeah, that's right. He. Uh, he sort of had a bad hamstring injury and uh, called it quits and, um, you know, is now on his way back. I think, he's, I think he arrives back this week, actually. So he's uh, back up, back home and uh, probably head into some coaching and uh, development of his foundation, which he's setting up. So, yep, he's got a different uh, different movement in life now, but he'll, I'm sure he'll do very well whatever he does. You're currently looking after 25 players. Some of them are already established. Others are coming through the ranks, and you recently concluded your placements for next season. Any interesting ones? Oh, Tappy, a lot of them were sort of uh, in the process of, um, you know, at various clubs and just recontracting, like Matt Moylan at uh, Cronulla, Bryce Cartwright at Parramatta, uh, moved a couple around, and Braden Burns from South to the Bulldogs, and... Um, Brett Maiden from um, the Panthers uh, to the Bulldogs and recontracted blokes like Jack Hethering to the Dogs, uh, Liam Martin at Penrith. So, yeah, enough to keep you busy. Um, mm. But, you know, just got a few young players coming through that will keep the ball rolling for the next few years. You're a bushy. You grew up at a little place called Gravesend near Warrialda <laughs> and your initial interest in racing was probably triggered by your grandmother's love of a little punt. Now, radio, Al, as you were growing up, was the sole source of information. And one of your earliest recollections, I'm about to date you now, <laughs> is listening to the great Red Craze winning the 1956 Caulfield Cup. He had 63 kilos in that race. Yeah, Tabby, it is. It's just amazing that I can still remember the day, you know, listening to the crackly radio with Grandma and she would have a little SP bet with the uh, with the publican in town and um, he was a he was an amateur writer but called Teddy Musk. I always remember that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we, we I just sort of always had the interest in, on, the, on my mother's side, uh, there was uh, always racing interest there. I'd come to down to uh, the central coast to my grandparents' place, and my uncle and my uh, 
grandpa, my pop, would always take me to either the Boxing Day races or the New Year's, New Year's Day races at Brandwick and, you know, just always followed the horses. You know, Red Craze, I have little doubt, and I know plenty of old-timers who'll agree with me, should have completed the Caulfield Melbourne Cup double that year. He gave the Melbourne Cup winner evening peel two stone or the equivalent thereof, and he got absolutely poleaxed at the half mile. Gosh, he was something beaten. Your memory's better than mine, Tabby. <laughs> I'm older than you. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot. <laughs> you went to Inverell High School. What sort of a scholar were you? Oh, it wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. I did get uh, a little suspension there at one time, I remember, because I did act as a bookmaker on the Melbourne Cup. Mm. Um, you know, just uh, copped a couple of days, sort of, can't do that here, boys. So I said, okay. Mm. But that was how avid my interest was. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I sort of went right through and did uh, the full six years high school and that's, yeah, came out of it pretty well. It was a great place in Verrell, still is. Still got a lot of fond memories about it. You left school in 1968 and you got a job in Sydney with the old value at General's Department. I think it still operates under the same name. Still does, for sure. Hmm? Yep. Yeah, it came to Sydney for, uh, you know, what I thought was going to be for a long period. Um, came down and did my uh, initial, um, what would you call it, uh, orientation mm. and believed I'd probably stay in Sydney for the rest of my time. That was my sort of focus. I had, a, I had some uh, interest in playing with uh, Newtown and North Sydney. I started some training there and then uh, mm. after about three months down here, I, the postings came and uh, they said, uh, you're heading to Moree. Mm. Transfer, <laughs> so, job transfer, right, uh, yeah. Yeah, very, very sort of unexpected, but anyway. I think that's why I was probably taken on because I was from up near that area. <laughs> that yeah. probably is a boy that will probably want to go back there. Well, it was in the Value of General's Moree office where you met a young bloke who was destined to become your mate and your ultimate business partner, Terry Mulhall. What are your earliest recollections of young Tez? Well, um, it was amazing. Um, we, after a very short period, we worked out that we had some very common interests. Terry played some great football for, for Penrith. Um, he had an avid interest in racing. We spent a lot of time together because we uh, were involved in doing initial valuations of a lot of areas out around the Moree area and the various shires, Boomoy, Bullaroo Shire, Namoy Shire. And we were would basically go out into the bush um, mm. on a Monday morning and come back either on a Friday night or a Friday afternoon. And, um, you know, we were, we were staying out in Shearer's quarters and country pubs, whatever, and working our, you know, bums mm. off during the day, doing valuations of properties, going out, uh, you know, and then we, you know, a good bit of night time sort of in those places and we mm. we just had a genuine interest in racehorses and the breeding aspect of it more more than anything. But, mm. um, yeah, it developed from that. And um, that's how it sort of evolved that uh, Terry then um, got out of the Value of General's Department and left to come back to Penrith where he formed a valuation, private valuation practice with a couple of other partners. And uh, mm. he got re-established back in, uh, down at Penrith. And uh, a couple of years later, 
the business was going really well for them and he offered me the chance to come down and join that business as a assistant valuer. And uh, when we got down there, that's where the sort of the, the racing side of things developed into a little bit of um, more serious business. Mm, horse syndication. Now, you and Terry settled on the name Hyperion Thoroughbreds, a strong, simple, appealing name. It honoured, of course, Lord Derby's grand little horse who won the Derby and the St Ledger in 1933 before becoming a sensational stallion in the UK. He was the grandsire of Star Kingdom, whose influence in this country blows on to this day. So it was a perfect name, wasn't it? A very appropriate name for the business. Yes, it was. That was, uh, I'll give credit to Terry for that. He came up with that name and I thought, well, you know, whatever he says, <laughs> he's done enough research on it and it did. It's, um, you know, it was a very synonymous name and, you know, sort of suited us very well. At the time, Alan, I think Harry Lawton was the only other syndicator on the horizon and he was formulating syndicates of six people. He was a good operator, full of energy full of integrity, highly regarded man in the business. Yeah, that's for sure. Harry sort of set the foundations for, well, shares. Um, but Harry only sort of specialised in the partnerships of six shares, which at that stage it was it was sort of appealing because everyone got their name in the race book and the participation was um, great. Um, but, you know, then there was a need we felt that uh, – would offer more people a greater interest in the game if we spread the risk or the involvement and the cost out to, you know, 15, 20, 25 shares. So that's where we came in and started doing that. After our initial, uh, Terry went and bought this little horse up at uh, up at uh, Dubbo, yeah. uh, called Prince Clarendon, who was our sort of um, – you know, first major one that was just done in a little partnership, mm. um, lease partnership. But you know, he was a he was a great little horse. He went on and won eight races, um, mm. twenty five thousand in those days was a lot of money yeah. for, to win. And um, you know, he was he was just sort of a pioneer. We all sort of kicked on from that. Mm. I was talking to Keith Bullock the other day at Racing New South Wales, and Keith gave me some interesting figures. 212 horses were syndicated in this state last season, up from 157 the season before. Those horses were sold by 18 approved syndicators and another 18 approved representatives of those syndicators. In other words, 36 people sold 212 yearlings. And I'm talking New South Wales only, Al. Yeah, that's... uh... It's phenomenal and it's still growing, as you can see. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's just indicative of the way that popularism of racing and, you know, the younger brigade getting involved. And I think they all like a, like some involvement. And that's, mm. that's, what, that's what we set out to do. We never set out to make sh- to guarantee anyone was going to make a profit out of it. It was just pure hobby involvement and uh, participation in the game, and that's what people were after. They'd like to go and say, well, I only have a a couple of hairs out of his tail, but, you know, Mm. I'm involved. Um, I can go to the pub. I can tell my mates that I've got an interest in a a horse. You know, if it won, if it won a good few races, they were doing very well. But, you know, even if it wasn't that successful, they still had that 
that great involvement in a, in a magnificent sport. Mm. The Corporate Affairs Commission put some pressure on you at the time, you and any other syndicator uh, that happened to come along. There were You had to toe the line. Yeah, they uh, interpreted that we were under the Companies Act. We were offering an interest under the terms of the Companies Act. And, you know, we sort of said, well, we're not selling an interest that's going to make profit for anyone. We're not guaranteeing anyone profit. Um, So there for a period we had to succumb to their um, requirements, which were basically setting up a a prospectus for each horse that we syndicated. And that the corporate costs in doing that, um, you know, almost made it not practical to syndicate mm-hmm. because, you know, if you're buying a horse for five, 6000 and then you had all these statutory costs on top of it, well, it just, it just sort of didn't make sense. But anyway, we had some ongoing discussions with all the authorities and over a period in the, you know, the AJC at that time and, you know, we did sort of put that to a side and we said, well, we based on the basis of having a dealer's licence and, you know, having to get everything approved by the AJC before, you know, launching a syndicate with all the costs involved and whatever. So, yeah, it, it worked out pretty well. But there was a, you know, we had to overcome a few, few not problems, but anomalies in thoughts and processes. Yeah. <laughs> it worked out well. With such a large clientele back then, your communication levels had to be high. And to this day, you're very proud of the way Hyperion Thoroughbreds conveyed information to hundreds of syndicate members. Yeah, it's a different situation today with social media, with text messaging, whatever, but we remember the days when, you know, the sole communication was the phone and um, newsletters and bulletins and you worked feverishly. It was very labour-intensive communicating to your shareholders and, you know, with each syndicate being individual, you know, with an individual horse, uh, things change overnight. We had a very big answer service that used to go 24 hours a day, had to update it regularly because of Mm. changes in programs, whatever, and, you know, shareholders sort of from near and far, you had to keep them very well informed of what was going on. But a very different regime today with the way you can communicate with your shareholders, um, Mm. for sure. The famous Hyperion Racing Colours are firmly uh, imprinted in my mind and the mind of those that uh, saw uh, saw them, uh, them race uh, frequently uh, on Australian tracks, the black and pink quarters, black sleeves and a pink cap. And most of your winners Australia-wide carried those colours, but you did have two other sets registered in case of multiple runners. Yeah, but um, basically we it was the two, two pink and black colours. We had the pink and black with pink diagonal stripes as well as, as the second colours and, uh, you know, we raced in those colours and the pink and black did become very synonymous with the company and the shareholders sort of all related to it. And, uh, you know, it's amazing how colours, as you know, are just very easy to identify the horse ownerships and that's mm. what we're all about. Mm. Alan, let's just look through some of the notable horses to carry those colours over the years. Bally Red comes to mind. He was good for business. He was early in the piece. He won the 1977 Ascot Vale, which is now called the Coolmore Stud Stakes, and he won 
the year after Surround and the year before Manicato. He was sandwiched in between two champions. Yeah, he was um, He was a good, very good horse by Red Gauntlet out of a mare called Clon Kelly. I thought that name, that's just come back to me. Right oh. away. Um, yeah, so uh, he was a dogged horse. He was trained by Angus Armanesco, who was a great old trainer and a thorough gentleman who trained for us in Melbourne. Um yeah, he was a, he was a good horse. We uh, he didn't like wet tracks, so we moved him up to Sydney there for a while, and um, you know mm. he, he raced up here for a little while. But he he was a very good sprinter. He uh, actually won four races in a row at four consecutive on four consecutive Saturdays at different tracks. So, mm. You know he was very when he was in the peak of form, he was a he was a bulldog for sure. I'll never forget Brandy Shipper. He won a lot of races. He had an unattractive action, but he had a booming finishing run. Yeah, you knew always knew where he was in the in the run. He was usually well back, and you know the boys that rode him, probably Gavin Duffy, got the best out of him. He was a he used to have a dynamic finish. You know, he was then he got over ground. He ran fourth to Dulcify in, mm. in a derby. Um, you know, and he was by Sovereign Slippery. He was only bred to probably go you know fourteen hundred, but. Uh, mm. He ran second to Dulcify and doubles, a fourth to Dulcify and double century in the, in the Derby. So, mm. yeah, he, he was, you know, you always remember some horses because of the way they raced, and he had a pretty ungainly action where we used to think the way he used to throw his legs around, he'd probably trip something if it got too close to him. Because he, <laughs> but he was, he was, you know, you, you always remember horses like that because he was a he was a thrilling horse to to watch because of the way he could finish off a race. Mm. Deveront was a good horse, Alan, for Hyperion, and what a cracking sort he was. Yeah, he was a great sort. He was by lunchtime and uh, Big Chestnut with just a magnificent confirmation. And, um, you know, he's uh, he went on to make his mark as a, as a sire of one of our, probably our best horses and probably favourite horse in Targlish. Mm. Oh, tell me about him. Uh, what an old marvel. We'll get to him in a moment, mate. There's a few mm. before him. You mm. Bet I Do was a son of the brilliant Biscay and he inherited yeah. all of the family speed. He often led in his races. Very hard not to lead with him. He just bounced out of the gates and just liked to go straight to the lead and he, uh, he held course records at uh, just about every track there for a while in Sydney. Um, yeah, he was he was by Biscay, of course, from the Star Kingdom line and um, – you know, he was uh, he was purchased. We purchased him from uh, as a well as a horse that had come through some trials in the two-year-old trials in Brisbane with Neil Strong, and uh, mm. we had a good relationship with Neil and bought some tried horses through him. All who turned out, you know, pretty well, pretty successful. Mm. You tell a good story about a horse called the Fun of It, in which you actually <laughs> retained a share. He won several races. But there's one that sticks in Alan Gainey's mind. Well, he didn't actually win, <laughs> but he was uh, always remember it because Terry and I had sort of uh, retained retained an interest in him, and Ray Guy uh, also had a little interest in him as well. And um, yeah, he's I think it was Golden Slipper Day. I think it was the the year that inspired won the Golden Slipper. I'm not yeah. quite sure, but, but I know it was Golden Slipper Day, and I know it was a sort of some big um, there was some big uh, you know, big pools in the races, and I always, mm. you know, we used to, we had a private box at uh, Rose Hill Racecourse where we'd entertain our clients, and, uh, have them up there, and um, I said on the day to one of our 
established and you know well-respected shareholders, I said, uh, "How about we just sort of have a few Cronulla uh, trifectas today? We'll pick four horses in every race, and we'll have a small outlay, mm. and um, we'll um, we'll pick. No, we're only having three horses. That's right. We'll we'll have one horse each that we'll, we'll you know select individually. We'll have one horse that will." Mm. Through the two of us on the ground. Anyway, it was uh, always remember that because I remember the names of the horses. The fun of it actually ran third at a good price, mm. <laughs> uh, but the other ones were um, Avatar mm. and uh, Thumbprint, mm. and they filled the placings. I think they were sort of in double figure odds and for a little small outlay. Um, we come away with a nice collect on the trifecta. They sort of went home and said, uh, said to my wife, well, I think we've got we've got about 3000 here. We can pay off our little second mortgage on our house. So, mm. you know, that, not a lot of money these days, but I always remember it was a very, uh, very, very good day that day because mm. I've never, never punted much, but just having a small outlay and sort of flummoxed one, it was uh, it was nice, mm. nice memory. Are you at liberty to divulge the extent of the collect? I think it was about 7000 Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Radiant Echo could scoot along a bit, Alan. He won about 10 races. He was a beauty for the company. Yeah, he was a front-running star, another good sort of a horse who went to stud as well. He didn't have a lot of success at stud, but he was by Osmunda. Mm. Um, yeah, but he was a, he was just a magnificent animal, um, you know, very very well conformed. He was stakes, stakes winner, so, you know, he was another one. Yep. Mm. And now that special tribute to Hyperion's most durable representative, the evergreen Targlish, who had a record like a veteran trotter. 109 starts, 17 wins, 31 placings, almost $600,000, and he won a Group 1. The 1989 Galaxy. Targlish was a triumph for syndication. Yeah, well, he was because he was actually by Deverant, who we'd syndicated, um, and he was out of a mare called Colony, who, who we syndicated. So we just put the two together, and the uh, they, the syndicate that actually owned um, the Colony um, took up most of the shares in in who was to become Targlish, and um, yeah, he was a great horse trained by one of our founder or our foundation trainer Jack Payton, who mm. uh, invested probably one of the best horses he'd ever trained. Yeah, yeah, and he he was just a durable, just a lovely horse. And any time there was a wet track, mm. you just say, "We'll get on." Mm. <laughs> he won a Group Two, the Theo Marks, ridden by Wayne Harris. He won two stakes races, the Hallmark and the Star Kingdom, with Kevin Moses on board. He was trained for all but three of his runs by Jack Payton, and uh, it came about by virtue of the fact that Jack didn't want to travel to Victoria with the horse uh, on one occasion when you had him in some races, and Bart Cummings looked after him for those three races at Flemington. During a cup carnival, he ran second in the Group 1 Gadsden. He won the Group 3 Great Western and he ran third in a Group 3 at Sandown. Yeah, well, that came about um, Roy Higgins was our Melbourne manager at that stage and we sort of ran it by Roy and said, what about if we bought, 
you know, Targ Lestown would, would bark interest in taking him because Jack was quite open to the, you know, to, he'd done a lot of work with him and Jack was very easy to get on with and he's, you know, quite happy for you to take him down there. And, mm. you know, being a wet tracker, we thought that was ideal and only took him down there to really run in the Gadsden, which I think was known then as the Yan Yan Stakes, and that was run on uh, run on Derby Day. Mm. And um, he ran second in that, and then uh, I think Bart, and, or more so probably Leon Corstens, and who was Bart's right-hand man mm. uh, at that time, and Roy said, well, you know, why don't we back him up on the, on Tuesday, Melbourne Cup Day, in the... Uh, in what was then the Great Western, um, we said, yeah, he backs up pretty well. He's a tough old bugger. So we backed him up in that. Mm. And he came and won that on uh, Melbourne Cup Day. I, I didn't see the Melbourne Cup that day. <laughs> <laughs> you were imbibing. <laughs> Oh, well, we had a group of shareholders and it was, was the Great Western, so um, we mm. just got sort of caught up in the Great Western. <laughs> and, uh, I bet you did. But, uh, you know, someone come in and said, oh, Kenzo, I just won the cup. And I thought, well, that's a, that's a great advert for syndication because yeah. Harry Lawton actually had syndicated Kenzo. So, yeah, yeah. you know, it was, very, it was very appropriate. Well, just pause for a moment, Alan, on the podcast to clear a commitment. We'll come back to you after this. Trainers strive to have horses spot on for race day. Fuel cells up, the right mental state, the right fitness levels. Equally important is the horse's capacity to recover quickly from racing and track work. The aim is to give owners every opportunity to win optimum prize money by keeping a horse in training for as long as possible. High Gain Recuperate is a powerful blend of electrolytes, B-group vitamins and vitamin E in paste form which can be administered after fast work and in the days leading up to a race to assist recovery. 30 mil of Recuperate drawn from the 500 mil bulk pack is the economical alternative to individual electrolyte and vitamin paste syringes. High Gain Recuperate powers performance and recovery. Visit the High Gain website and use promo code johntap.racing to receive 15% off your next Recuperate purchase. My special guest is Alan Ganey, a founder of one of the early pioneer syndicators here in Australia. Hyperion Thoroughbreds. We've been talking about the late Jack Payton who trained uh, a great money spinner for Hyperion's Targlish, the evergreen Targlish. Well, following that little Melbourne campaign, he came back to Sydney. Jack Payton took over again and it was very fitting that Jack should win the Group 1 Galaxy with him later on. Jack Payton was the perfect trainer for a syndicator, wasn't he? He was not only a great horseman, but very hospitable to owners. He welcomed visitors. Yeah, he was he was just nature's gentleman, Jack. Um, he was always open to have conversation with owners, no matter whether who they were, whether from the back of Burke or whatever, because he was a country trainer based out at Orange before he came to um, Hawkesbury. Mm. Uh, Terry knew, knew of him through some family situation, and uh, he was an ideal choice for us to kick off, you know, Probably commercially, um, you know, when you advertise syndicates, you sort of, you know, they had probably had more appeal with uh, with some of the top trainers, but uh, mm. it worked out very well with Jack. You know, he's uh, and the cost basis of keeping your costs to a reasonable level at that stage were important, but Jack was very 
you know, always open to having owners at his stable visits, um, you know, gave people, you know, good insight into horses. But, yeah, he was he was the ideal man to, to kick off the company. Hyperion Thoroughbreds broke new ground in the early 1980s when you purchased a horse in the United States. You syndicated him in Australia. He won five races in America and he got to run in the 1984 Kentucky Derby. How did that all happen? Well, um, we did a lot of racing tours, which uh, were very popular. You know, we kicked it off with Ambassador Travel, a good friend of both Terry and mine and Peter Harney, who still conducts these tours today. Um, We took some tours to the Kentucky Derby. I think our first one was 1978. Uh, And then a couple of years later, we, you know, started... Peter was putting together these tours and um, one of the operators over there, he was uh, basically handled all the uh, visits to studs, the visitations to studs for, you know, visitors coming in via tours and whatever. Mm. He actually was sort of a part-time racehorse trainer too, so we got to know him well. He's a bloke called Jerry Russell. Mm. We sort of had, Terry had some conversations with him and said, well, you know, we could probably buy it, you could buy it horse over here and we'll try and syndicate it back in back in Australia for Australian owners and you know give, give them a bit of uh, diversity in the interests and follow a horse overseas so that's the way it did happen we bought two but one of them happened to be a, a horse called So Vague So Vague yep. yep it was by Empery yeah who won an English derby of course so you know we had a bit of pedigree to go there mm. well he was the first Aussie horse to run in the Kentucky derby he was ridden by the first female jockey to ride in the derby, Patty Cooksley, and you organised a tour group and you had a hell of a day at Churchill Downs. Oh, yes. It's always fond memories. That, um, yeah, we uh, didn't have a lot of shareholders there. It was probably only three or four, but uh, it was a great day. Um, you know, we, we'd come into there by qualifying to run in the Kentucky Derby by winning... Um, the Hollywood preview stakes to start before, so they got automatic qualification into the derby. So we thought, well, we'll run. Mm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we organised quickly to get over there and uh, take a few shareholders over. And uh, yeah, it was a great day. A mm. Great day. <laughs> the jockey's name was Patty Cooksey, not Patty Cooksley, as I said earlier. Yeah. Well, you brought that horse home to Australia eventually. Colin Hayes trained him here. And he did a pretty good job, Alan. He won the Eclipse Stakes twice. He ran yep. second to Rising Prince in a McKinnon. Michael Clark rode him in those races. Yeah, he, he, he came back. You know, it's always hard those days bringing a horse back to Australia. But we thought, oh, well, we'll do that. And, um, yeah, he came back and to win those two Eclipse Stakes and, to, you know, run second in the McKinnon. It was a pretty tidy effort. But, uh, yeah, he, he was he's a pretty, pretty smart horse. We've mentioned eleventh in the Kentucky Derby. We all say, "Well, that's where uh, yeah. the mighty Sir Tristram ran eleventh too in the Kentucky Derby." So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. gee, uh, mate, you can you can pluck out a circumstance. Can't you? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Colin Hayes, we've mentioned Jack Payton, we've mentioned, of course, they were two of several trainers uh, you patronised between nineteen seventy four and nineteen ninety. But we must pay special tribute to the late Ray Guy, with whom you had terrific success and a very special friendship. 
Yeah, he was uh, he was very special to us. He was once again uh, a people's trainer. He uh, he loved mingling with the people, the shareholders, had many open days, stable visits. Uh, he was always participating, and it was always well. One of Ray's, Ray's great attributes was you know his ability to go and select horses at uh, yearling sales. We did a lot of stud tours, you know, watching horses grow from the weanling through to the yearling stage. We, we picked out a lot of horses sort of in the paddock and followed them through to the yearling sales or bought them privately. Mm-hmm. Ray was always a very good judge. He, he loved to see how a horse walked. He was a very, very big on that, see how much they stepped over, you know, loved, mm-hmm. loved. You'd get behind them and you'd, you'd see them walking like anything and Ray sort of give him the thumbs up. Yep, he's right. Yeah. Yep. Joe Hall trains some horses for you in South Australia. You've mentioned Neil Strong in Queensland. Bruce McLaughlin did some work for you at one stage, and so did yep. Angus Armanasco. And you even put the toe in the water in WA, where Len Morton was the trainer of your choice. Yeah, Len had some couple of good horses. We didn't syndicate a lot over there, but we did a few. We had a we had a good century cold over there, um, century god. He, he was, a, I think, he was a stakes place giver or a stakes winner over there as well. So we'd spread our wings far and wide. But that was the way the demand was. You know, there was a lot of West Australian participants in our syndicates that were racing. You know, shares in horses in Sydney, Melbourne. So you know, we we did the you know trying it over there, and it did did come along. It wasn't we didn't have the number of owners, but. When you look back and you found out where all our owners came from, where, from mm. the ads that we used to put in the, the media, and the, it was just uh, phenomenal, the vast array of area they came from. Mm. By 1990, the effects of a very serious recession were wreaking havoc in the business world. And it was with great sadness that you and Terry were forced to wind the company down to disband all existing syndicates and to bring the curtain down on a very exciting time in your lives. Yeah, that was a, was a as I say, the recession we had to have. It had some implications on us because we'd gone into some different modes of syndication, the pay-as-you-go syndicates, the big uh, um, stallions and stallion shares and broodmare syndicates and, um, you know, there was a lot of people, a lot of people under a lot of pressure at that stage and, you know, it just became a situation where the option was to um, let the syndicates take over their own management or sell um, and they, they gradually worked their way out. Some of the syndicates just formed their own little management group that wanted to go on with horses that were warranted. A lot of the horses were sold mm-hmm. and uh, syndicates just disbanded and away we went. A large number of jockeys wore the black and pink silks during Hyperion's 16 years of operation. Gavin Duffy was the lucky bloke to ride Targlish when he won the Group 1 Galaxy, but the jockey who almost certainly rode the greatest number of winners for the company, was the remarkable Ray Silkrig, the perfect jockey, Alan, for a syndicator. How many times did Ray turn up at a Hyperion function on request? Oh, without fail. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, uh, we used to, you know, he'd, he'd even, he and Pat would even uh, come out to when we were doing our monthly newsletters and come to the office and, uh, you know, give us a hand sort of putting newsletters together. They, they were just phenomenal. And Ray was, 
nature's gentleman. He's still alive and doing well, and um, he's uh, he's he's just a you know just was so important to us. He he gave us everything that we wanted. Honest feedback. Um, gave every horse the most chance. We, we didn't sort of link up with him till later in Ray's career, but mm. once we did. It was a very hard bond. You'd never break it because uh, mm. he was part of he was part of our DNA. Mm. Ray's ninety years of age, Alan, but his memory's intact, and he could probably tell you the name of every winner he ever rode for Hyperion. Oh yeah, yeah, we still have regular contact with him. Um, finds it a little bit hard to hear over the phone at the moment, but he's he's doing well, and mm. uh, you know he's still still uh, you know has his wits about him and going very strongly. Mm. Hard to believe it's 31 years since Hyperion disappeared from the landscape. Yes, it, uh, it is. It doesn't seem like yesterday, but, you know, it's, just, it's a long time ago. It's when, when we started thinking about, you know, 45, 50 years ago when it started, I thought, gee, Hyperion. This will test my memory. Mm. <laughs> but uh, thank heavens that you've got uh, plenty of statistics and that available, which, uh, you know, revives many memories for me. Mm. Do you and I'm have, sure Terry as well. Oh, yeah. Do you have any idea how many individual shareholders were signed up by Hyperion in those 16 years? Oh, gee. There were multiple, you know, a lot of people had shares in multiple horses oh, yeah. too. And yeah, um, I don't know, it could be two or three thousand. I wouldn't have a clue. Mm. It could be more. Yeah. I think it probably would be, you know, when you looked at the number of horses was syndicated with the number of shares, you know, it probably would have been in that vicinity. Mm. Was there any supreme thrill, supreme moment, supreme day, supreme race in your mind? Oh, there were many highlights. It was probably, uh, you know, seeing Tiglish win that um, win the Galaxy. It was always a, a big thrill. It was a big thrill for Jack, I know, and you know the shareholders going to the court, going to um, you know, going to um, the Kentucky Derby was 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 enormous. Um, yeah. I was the lucky one that got assigned that duty to. He said, no, you go. I said, no, you go. He said, no, you go. So I, I ended up there and had the honour of meeting uh, the uh, former president. He wasn't uh, president at that stage, but, uh, you know, it was, it was a it was a magnificent day. Um, we we did sort of because there was a, there was a mint tulip class that Peter Haney came over with me in Ambassador Travel. There was a mint julep class that we always got our got your mint juleps in. It was a commemorative one for each year. So we said we've got 20 shareholders. <laughs> you couldn't buy the glasses. You had to actually drink the mint juleps. So we mm. decided that we were going to uh, bring enough glasses back for to give one to each shareholder. I don't think we got there, and I think there was a few breakages on the day too. So, but there were a few came back. Yeah, so oh, there's many. There's just many, many memories. Just great memories of participation. You know, you, you just. You, the thrill of just waking up on a Saturday morning and saying, "Right, we're heading off to Rose Hill for another race meeting." Um, mm. You know, it was, it was it was good. You know, you, you you just you were thrilled for the owners. You know, you 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 couldn't you couldn't imagine the thrill that some owners got out of having a, a minute share or or. or some might have had substantial shares in a horse that had won a race anywhere. Mm. It was just they they just they just got 
un, un sort of bridal, you know, happiness out of seeing that their horse had won a race and they could buy a photo of it, put it up in their bar and say, well, you know, I was part of that. That, that was what mm. it was all about. Alan, been great to catch up. Please give Terry Mulhall my best regards. And uh, with syndication booming as it is all over Australia now in this age of unthinkable prize money, uh, we spare a thought for the pioneers and the trailblazers like the great organisation Hyperion Thoroughbreds. Alan, lovely to talk on the podcast on a Sunday morning. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Tappy. It's been an enormous privilege and pleasure to do it for you. Thanks, man.